incredible event after incredible event, and we come to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and that's where we're going to start today, if you want to turn there now, 2 Samuel 11. We'll read through to chapter 12, verse 15. We'll stop along the way and highlight some things. We've talked about this sin many times, David's sin with Bathsheba, David's sin with Bathsheba, right? We all know, and I think it's important to read through the backdrop for what we see in Psalm 51. So again, 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at that time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel... And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. If you go back into, into chapter 10, you'll see that David was trying to, uh, after um, the king of Ammon died, David was trying to console his son. His son did not react well, and they went to war against Ammon. And that battle had gone on until it became winter, and then everybody goes home. They come back the next spring to fight again. And David had sent, you know, Joab to do that. So even that battle, it doesn't look like the year before that David had gone out with them. And it says it rounds it back into this spring of this next year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sends them again, but he remains behind. They destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And the first thing we see is David is not doing what he is supposed to be doing. He's not involved in what he is supposed to be doing. What are you supposed to be doing? What's supposed to consume our time? Prayer? Getting to know God through his word? Utilizing whatever gifts he has given us to build up the church? Helping other people to know about him? God's given us a whole bunch of things to do and he wants to give us the power and will give us the power to do those as well, but we often find ourselves involved in lots of other things that are not the things that he calls us to, that are not what we're, I mean, I hate to use the word supposed to do, right? Because then it seems like a burden, and it's not a burden, but we look at it like that often. So David remains behind. The kings are supposed to be at battle, David remains in Jerusalem. He's not involved. It would have been a lot safer for him to be in the battle than where it ends. What what he ends up doing instead. Verse two. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? 2 Samuel 23, 34, if you want to write that down, again, you can go back and look at these later, lists Eliam, 2 Samuel 23, 34, lists Eliam as one of David's 30 mighty men, and as the son of Ahithophel, And verse 9 of the same chapter tells us Uriah is also one of David's mighty men. So David is wandering around in his leisure on the roof of his palace, 
And he looks down and he sees this woman bathing. And the wheels start turning. And he decides he wants to know more. He could have turned around and walked back in his house. He could have stopped there. But now desire, the desire in him has been caught hold of. And he starts, well, so what's, what's the next step of this going to be? What's the next thing? Well, let me find out who she is. Let me find out who she is. And he knew he shouldn't be there. He knew he shouldn't be looking after this. I don't know whether at this point he thinks, I'm the king, I can do anything. We have this picture of David that, aside from this, he was somehow perfect. And he's not. We can go back and we can see that the kings of Israel were told, don't multiply wives. David has probably 10 wives at this time already. So there's some, there's, there's some thing in his heart about sexual sin, about going, God says, don't do this, but I want to go further than what God says. And so there's that thing, there's, this, there's seeds that have been sown of sin there. And to continue to do these things. And he could have stopped there. And then he asks, who is this? Who is this person? And he finds out she's the woman, uh, she's the daughter of one of his bravest men. So, hmm, that's Eliam's daughter. He probably wouldn't like that, right? Probably wouldn't like that I'm ogling his daughter. So there's one, there's one line to cross. She's Eliam's daughter, one of my bravest men. She's the daughter, the granddaughter of his best advisor, Ahithophel. And Rick alluded to this before, and we've talked about how when Absalom uh, tries to usurp David's throne, Ahithophel goes to him, perhaps in anger over what had happened with Bathsheba, with his granddaughter, what David had done. The advice of Ahithophel was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God, 2 Samuel 16 tells us. So Ahithophel, super wise, I'm thinking about messing around with his granddaughter. He probably won't find out. He won't know. He'll never find out what's going on, right? This is where our desire, we start shutting off our mind. We start shutting off what we know is right and wrong because our desire brings us to places. And then he's told also this is the wife the daughter of one of his bravest men, Eliam, the granddaughter of his smartest advisor, and the wife, as soon as he heard wife, he should have went, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to think about this anymore. The wife of one of his bravest men, someone we'll, we'll see in this story, is deeply honorable and deeply loves his wife. So he has to decide to betray three people that are close to him, that he respects, that he has fought with, and he has to rationalize that this is somehow okay. You ever been through a progression like that in your life? Yeah, I have. Well, there's this, and that's not going to work out well, but I want. And there's that, and that's not going to work out well but I want, and I want, and I want, and I want. What is the driving force? What binds, blinds us to the consequences and causes us to forget how gracious God has been to us? 
right? David's got all this history with God, and his mind just goes, Shh, I want what I want. It's our own pleasure. It's what we'll get from whatever it is we want to do. Verse 4, then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. The woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now David has a bigger problem, and the wheels start spinning. How am I going to solve this, right? I went past all these check marks, all these roadblocks that God had put up this in, and God throws up a roadblock, and you go, I think this is probably from God. And sometimes you blow right through it. I've blown right through them at times. So now I have to figure out how to solve this next problem. David has to figure out how to solve this next problem. He sends, verse 6, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So Uriah arrives and David starts making small talk, right? How's Joab doing? How's the war going? You guys have enough arrows? You know, is there enough food? He's chit-chatting with Uriah, right? But he's scheming behind all of this. And he sends Uriah on his way. David said to Uriah, verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet. And he's hoping he'll go down and he'll relax and he'll go in with his wife and nobody will be the wiser that this child is his. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. So we find out in verse 9 that he slept at the door of the king's house with all, his serv- with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So Bathsheba must have been confused when this gift basket arrives and she doesn't know where it's come from. Uriah is not there to explain to her why she's getting this. And he doesn't go to his house. And David, in verse 10, finds out he didn't go down. And he says, why didn't you, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And David's making it sound like it would be totally normal for Uriah that he should go home and enjoy some time with his wife. And no doubt Uriah was there. And if he wasn't there, he certainly heard about this. When David would not drink the water that his men risked their lives for, when he said, David had said, and this is recounted in 2 Samuel 23, it's looking back on something that had happened before, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And three of his men break through the Philistine lines to go get him a cup of water from this well. They're so enamored with their general, with their leader, David, He's asked for it. They're going to go get it. They bring it back to him and listen to what David says. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, that I should drink this, take even a drink of this water. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? See the conviction that David had at a different time in his life. And we see how far beyond that He's going in this situation. So Uriah says to David in verse 11, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife 
as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Far be it from me, Lord, that I should do this. I will not do this thing. I want to be just like you, David. I want to have the conviction that you have. I'm not going to do this. I won't, I won't go be with my wife. Just like you wouldn't even take a drink of that water, David. So plan A doesn't work. And we see the amazing loyalty that Uriah has for God, for his country, and for his soldiers. So in verse 12, David says to Uriah, wait here also today. Like, what now what am I going to do? Tomorrow I'll let you depart. So he's buying time to scheme to figure out what he's going to do to fix this problem. How can I get Uriah to go and sleep with his wife so I can keep my sin covered? So I can keep my sin from being realized. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. David made him drunk, thinking... We'll get his inhibitions out of the way. We'll keep him from thinking clearly. And at the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan B does not work either. Verse 14, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. Plan C. David's obviously frustrated. He could have started with this plan. He could have, from the get-go, he could have said, hey, let's get Joab killed. We'll pretend this never happened. We can say Bathsheba slept with someone else. This will all be good. It'll be fine. Nobody will know she wasn't pregnant before. It'll all work out. But you see the progression of his sin. First, I'm going to try this to cover it up. Then I'm going to try this to cover it up. Then I'm going to kill him. That wasn't in his heart to begin with, but the desire to cover his sin pushes him further and further into more sin. So he's forced to sin further. So now we see that the blood of men no longer holds the weight it once did for David. When he poured that water out on the ground and said, I won't drink this, now the blood of men is inconsequential because of what he wants to spend for his own pleasure. And he will spend the lives of others, and we will spend the lives of others for our own pleasure. Verse 16, so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you finish telling the matters of the war to the king, if it so happens that the king's wrath rises... And he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know Rubbesheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall, so he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, 
your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So if David gets mad when you bring this report back, just let him know Uriah is dead. Then he'll be, he'll be okay. So the messenger went and came and told David, and Joab doesn't know why David wants to kill Uriah at this point. Joab has no idea, as far as we can tell, right? As far as he knows, he wanted Joab to, uh, Uriah to come back so that he could confront him about something. He knows something about Uriah nobody else knows and sends him back to be killed, and he doesn't question the order. So some guys, Uriah and others get killed, and he sends the messenger back and says, if he gets upset about what's happened, so now it's not just Uriah that's killed in this. There are multiple people, multiple people whose blood is spilled who are killed because of this sin. And the messenger said, verse 23, surely the men prevailed against us, and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance to the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Servant's not interested in seeing David's wrath flare up, so he just throws it in right away. He doesn't wait for him to get mad. He just says, I, I, bad things happen when kings get mad, so I'm just going to go ahead and offer this because Joab said it was going to help. So what does it mean to David? Uriah is dead. What does it mean to David? My sins cover. I won't be found out. I can tell people when he came home, he really did go sleep with Bathsheba. It wasn't during the night when he was asleep with us. It was another time. She came to the palace while we were having dinner. I can make a story up. Sin upon sin upon sin. Verse 25, then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you. Don't be upset about these people getting killed. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Messenger, you go back and tell Joab these things. So he's brought Joab into his sin. Everything's turned upside down now. What would have been intolerable to have happen in battle, what he would have fired people for, what heads would have rolled for, now it's okay because it covers his sin. What was once unfathomable to David is now something he's orchestrating, that he's putting in place to accomplish this thing. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What the phrase really means is, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It didn't just upset him a little bit. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he's brought her to be his wife. Now he can claim, you know, this happened afterwards, the baby's premature, blah, 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 whatever. There's all sorts of avenues to cover his sin now that this thing has been done. And throughout the generations, right up today, probably this very moment, somebody is saying, well, God forgave David as an excuse 
to keep on breaking through the roadblocks that God has set up. Taking it as a reason to proceed down a sinful path. I'm sure I've done it myself, and it does show the incredible grace of God. But that grace is not to be trampled on. That's not what that's for. <clears throat> it shows, right, this, this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And it shows when we're in that mode, it shows who we are determined to please. We are determined to please ourselves, not the Lord. We're not looking to do the things that honor him, that are for his pleasure, but they are for our pleasure. In the garden, the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Should I care if God said, don't eat it? I got three reasons why I should go this way. There's always going to be reasons. It didn't matter that it was evil in his eyes. It didn't matter that he had said, don't do this thing. It didn't matter that he said, you'll surely die. I've entered into sin, taking my life in my hands. I'm not sure if I snort this thing, whether it's going to kill me or not. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But I wanted to do it. We will see in Psalm 51 the conviction and difficulty that David experiences over the time he's hiding his sin. In chapter 12, God intervenes in the situation further to prompt David to deal with his sin. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. And picture of Uriah's relationship with Bathsheba in this, the closeness with which they had. And a traveler, verse 4, came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So let's talk a moment about the traveler. Someone who comes out and creates or exploits a situation for your dark side to come out. Who does that sound like? I want to give you several scriptures that show who this is indicative of. Uh, Job 1.7, if you want to write that down. 1 Peter 5.8 and Luke 4.13. Job 1.7, 1 Peter 5.8, Luke 4.13. In Job 1, God asks Satan where he's been from going back, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it, the traveler. First Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour, the traveler. Luke 4.13 tells us, when the devil had ended every temptation of Jesus, he departed from him until an opportune 
time. The traveler. Traveler is looking for an opportune time for all of us. Looking for a time to come and exploit our desire. And he came and exploited the desire of David. And he came to stay. And we've got, it's got to be at least nine months of the progression of this. Because we've got a baby being born. Who knows how much longer. But all of these things taking place. And you know what it's like when you've done something and it's eating away at you. And the traveler says, I love this. I love this. James 1, 14 and 15 gives us a clear picture of the progression of sin. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Our own desires. These are things that live within us. It is not from somebody else's. It's not somebody else's fault. It starts with us. Traveler comes and exploits it. Satan comes and exploits it. But it lives with us to begin with, and we need to recognize that. Satan's looking for an opportune time. He's transient. He's not always there. He is looking for an opportune time, looking for a place to stay when he can get on us musing on our own desires. How often do we do that? We start thinking about the stuff, whatever it is. I want this. I want that. We fantasize about it. We play it out in our minds. And he's, oh, well, I'm happy to step into this situation and provide a means for you to exercise that desire. But he's transient. How do you get the transient to go away? You resist them. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Take your thoughts captive to Christ. I got this stuff going on. We take our thoughts and we try to make them captive to ourselves. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not looking at you on purpose, Carrie. We, we try to take our thoughts captive to us, right? Like we, we look at that scripture and like, well, I guess I'm just supposed to not think about that or I'm supposed to think about other things. If you're taking something captive to someone else, you bring it to them and you say, here's your captive. Will you take care of this, please? I'm not strong enough to keep this captive. And we can sit down and we can say, Jesus, this is what I'm thinking. And when we sit down with him and we say that, we go, this is ridiculous and I need to stop doing it. This is, this is wrong. This is minimizing the greatness of God in my life. I don't want to think this way. Jesus, will you take this captive? Will you take this captive for me? When we try to control it ourselves, we got all these thoughts running around in our mind, and we end up with a riot, just like a prison break, right? The alarms are going off. Mattresses are getting burned, thrown over the edge of the railing. Oh my gosh, I can't stop these thoughts. They're all going on in my in my head. Because we haven't taken them and brought them to him. We haven't sat down with the Lord and said, "This is what's going on with me. 
And I need to talk to you about it. And I need to allow you to capture it because you're strong enough and I am not. Jesus, I'm thinking what it would be like to share this gossip. Jesus, I'm thinking what it would be like to get revenge on this person. Jesus, I'm thinking about what it would be like to be with that man or that woman who's not my spouse. Jesus, I'm thinking about what it would be like to have what they have. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever those thoughts are, taking them and bringing to him. <clears throat> James uh, says, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask amiss, wanting to spend on your pleasure. Right before that, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And we don't ask for right thinking. We don't ask for Jesus to take those things captive. We let them run in our minds. We don't pause to make our thoughts captive to Christ and our desire has conceived and sin is on the way. It's on the way through the birth canal. Here it comes. So verse 5, 2 Samuel 12 David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He thinks Nathan's telling him something that actually happened. David, have you heard about this? This guy came, a traveler came to his house. He took this one guy's lamp. It's terrible. What? He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing. No idea what's coming. He's incensed at this story. It's unbelievable that anyone would act this way. This guy has to die and restore fourfold. It's kind of interesting that he dies first. I don't know how he restores fourfold afterwards, but he's plainly angry about what has happened. And we've talked about this before. David will lose four sons. The son, the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with, Amnon, his son, at the hand of Absalom, Absalom, after his rebellion at the hands of Joab, and Adajanah at the order of Solomon. He will repay fourfold. Exactly what he said is going to happen to him. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. This is the stage set for Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Do not, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So David writes this psalm after Nathan has left him. There's 16 things that David asks God to do and two things he asks him not to do. We'll get to those in a few minutes. Talked about this before. There's no sacrifice for adultery or murder. There's no prescription saying, bring a couple of pigeons and we'll make this right. No, no. there's nothing you can do to make this right. You can't employ the system to regain right standing. David recognizes If he is going to be made right, it will be the work of God that will make him right. In verse 16, he says, You do not desire sacrifice. You do not delight in burnt offering. Verse 17 tells us what God does want, what God does delight in. A contrite heart. The sense of the word for contrite is collapsed a collapsed heart. What's the value of a heart, right? You got chambers that open and shut. Collapsed heart doesn't work too well. When we have a collapsed heart, a contrite heart, there's no fight left in us against what God would have us do. We're done. We've surrendered. We've surrendered to what he wants to do in our lives. 
a broken spirit isn't trying to assert its own will anymore. It's not a trying to assert its own desire, but it's allowing God's spirit, God's will to rule in your life. These are the things that God desires. Verse 6 tells us another thing that God wants for us. Truth in the inward parts, and that we would have wisdom in the hidden parts of our lives. Think about the hidden part of your life. What's in there? I'm not asking for an answer. (laughs) I'm telling you to think about it, right? It's like a closet that you shoved everything into, and you don't want to open it because it's going to come spilling back out. Once in a while, you got to dive in there because that's where the flashlight is and you need it. But there's like you're trying to avoid that hidden part of your life all the time because you don't know how to deal with it. You certainly don't want anybody else opening that door. You've probably attempted to, and if God is, uh, if God has been gracious to you, God has been gracious to you. If you have a person in your life, hidden parts of your life to them, you know what that experience feels like. You're stammering, you're sweating, you're trying to get them to understand, and hopefully they do. God's desire is to bring wisdom to that part of you, to the hidden part of your life, the part you can't even understand that's tangled up like fishing line. You ever try to get a knot out of fishing line? Luke knows what that's like. Easier on a fly. I don't know whether it is or not, but it's a mess. The hidden part of our life. God wants to act in the hidden part of our life. We want to throw more stuff in the closet. (laughs) Make it, and I think it'll fit more, right? God wants to uncover those things and allow us freedom instead of all the mind space that's taken up by these hidden parts of our life. He wants truth in the inward parts and wisdom in the hidden part of our lives. He wants to bring order to our chaos. Verse 12 talks, so those are two things that God, uh, well, multiple things that God wants. Brokenness in spirit and in heart, contrite heart, truth in our inward parts, and wisdom in the hidden parts of our lives. Those are really wonderful things for us to have. Verse 12 talks about the joy of not our salvation, your salvation, the salvation you provide. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and of being upheld by his generous spirit. If I lack joy in my salvation, what what crowds out the joy of his salvation? And I just, I just made the mistake, if I lack joy in my salvation, if I lack joy in his salvation, what crowds it out? Finding joy in other things by what you think God hasn't given you. Crowds it out. If I don't see his spirit as generous, right? Uphold me by your generous spirit. If I don't see his spirit as generous... I'm off trying to uphold myself. I'm trying to make this work. I'm on a unicycle with spinning plates and chainsaws, trying not to hurt myself or others, and I am doing it anyway. And so then I have, if, if 
if I lack joy in his salvation, if I don't see his spirit as generous, what would I be teaching transgressors? What would I be converting them to? Hey, you want to ride a unicycle like me and try and juggle this stuff? You want to be exhausted? Come on in, it's fun. He wants to uphold us, not to uphold ourselves. David understands that the work is going to be God's, and here are other things that he asks God to do. Have mercy according to your loving kindness and tender mercies, not according to our goodness. Blot out my transgressions. Not accept me for doing good for a day or a week or a month, but blot them out. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. Purge me with hyssop. There's three places hyssop is mentioned in the Old Testament. And I think David would have been familiar with all three. Write these down. Go back and read them later. I'll explain a little bit about them now. Exodus 12, 21 and 22. Leviticus 14, you can read the whole chapter. Numbers 19. All of these places where hyssop is mentioned. Exodus 12, 21 and 22 is at the first Passover. Hyssop was dipped in the blood of the lamb that they were told to sacrifice. Top piece and the sides, the doorposts of each door. So that the angel of death would see that blood and pass by the homes of the children of Israel. Leviticus 14 talks about the law of lepers, and hyssop is used in a ceremony where one bird is killed, the other is sprinkled with its blood, and set free. Your leprosy is set free, gone away from you. Numbers 19, a red heifer without blemish that has never been yoked is killed. Just enough of its blood, a finger tip of blood at times, you're giving this access into the presence of God. The whole rest of this red heifer is burned. Nothing left, nothing's taken out. No pieces of meat, none of the offal, none of anything. Everything is burned along with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. And those ashes were then gathered together and stored, and they would be mixed with water in order to purify the people from sin. It was for the purification of the people that they could enter into worship and community with God when they had become unclean. Verse 9 of Numbers 19 says, It is for purifying from sin. David says, purge me with hyssop. I need to be spared from the angel of death. I need my cleansing from my leprosy, from my deep sin that I cannot get rid of myself. And I need it to fly away from me. I need purification from my sin. Purge me with hyssop. I'm not going to the priest for this, God. I'm coming to you to do these things that you prescribed in your word because that's where the real power is and there's no power in these other things for me. There's nowhere else I'm going to get this. Wash me, make me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. 
Renew a steadfast spirit, your spirit, within me. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed. Open my lips. Do good to Zion. Build the wall. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Build the walls of the city of peace. This is what God wants to bring about for us: is peace. Build up those walls. When we go with our own plans and pleasures, we despise the Lord. The things he has done for us become very small. Things that he's done become very small in our sight as we trail off after our sin. The table, the cross, will become small in your sight when you're off after other things. And he wants to make these things big in our eyes and important in our eyes. We have the musicians come up. We're going to sing a song from... Psalm 51, and as we sing this, the tables will be open. There's Joel. So why don't we stand? Mm, Yes, thank you.